everyone, and welcome to the first, well, new episodes of Constructed Resources. I'm Lou Scott Vargas, and I'm going to be joined by my co-host here, Andrew Beckstrom. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Luis. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, Andrew, or actually more commonly called BK for really unknown reasons, uh, BK is a, a good friend of mine. He lives here in Denver. He works for Dire Wolf Digital, and he's a very accomplished Magic player. He's actually one of the two people who turned down an MPL invite uh, You know, a couple years ago now. You've got, what, a GP win, a number of GP top eights, anything else? Oh, sorry, the, the TCG Max Point Championship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the TCG 50K that I won a couple of years back, they gave me a giant novelty check, and uh, I, I carried it around with me for a while. Yeah, actually, BK brought it into the office, or I did, because when he moved here, I, I brought it back for him on a flight, and I left it at his desk, and then it never went to his house for like a year and a half, and I kept putting it on his desk. It was pretty good. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about what we're doing here. This is a new podcast, uh, a reboot, if you will. We we definitely have Marshall's blessing to use the constructed resources name and all, and all that since, you know, Marshall and John Locks and then Marshall and Ephra did constructed resources before, but currently that, that wasn't something being used. And it's an opportunity because uh, I like talking about magic. I uh, wanted to do a constructed podcast and you know, I thought BK would be an awesome addition. So BK and I are going to be doing constructed resources every week. Uh, if you're a fan of limited resources, you're going to see a lot uh, here that's kind of reminiscent of that in terms of how we approach kind of talking about magic. Because what we want to do is we're going to focus on what's going on, right? You know, standard and historic, modern, pioneer, maybe some other formats like legacy or vintage from time to time, but mostly on like the, the current constructed formats. But we're also going to be doing level up episodes where we kind of teach you f fundamentals of constructed or just magic. It's, you know, I, I never thought LR was limited to just literally limited magic. We're going to be highlighting tournament results and interesting decks, uh, you know, giving our picks for upcoming tournaments. And at, like today, uh, opinions on bans and unbans and then a constructed set review. So th that's all the, the, the sweet stuff we've got planned with, I'm sure, more to develop as kind of this show, you know, gets its legs. But I'm excited to kick off our first episode here, BK. Yeah, this should, this is an exciting one. There are bands hitting a number of formats today. There's a bunch of cool tournaments coming up. I've got the Pro Tour Finals tournament, Players Tour Finals tournament uh, coming up in a few weeks that I'm testing for right now. It'll be exciting to see how that goes. Yeah, uh, BK actually had a, a good finish at the, the last paper players tour uh you you lost playing for top eight but you know the consolation prize is you get qualified for the players tour final so that's pretty sweet yeah i actually double qualified for this one. Oh right you actually went uh, x and four at the online players tour as well so look i far be it from me to short bk of his accomplishments <laughs> <laughs> uh th this show is sponsored by channelfireball.com another you know adding another podcast to the cfb podcast network uh of course i'm always happy to do that uh and what I want to talk to you about was channelfireball.com slash pro. If you look at CFB Pro, one of the cool things we do is we run a, a CFB Pro showdown uh, once a month, and we're actually doing that next week. It's a free tournament for CFB Pro members, and we're giving away $1,000 store credit, plus the winner gets to play the end boss, which in this case is actually going to be me again. And if they win, they double their prize. So far, the, in the first two showdowns, the end boss has been emerged victorious, first me, then Reed. So hopefully this week, uh, you know, maybe someone can can fight for the people because what we're doing actually is if the winner beats the end boss, 
the entire top eight gets their prizes doubled. So that's going to be exciting. And that's going to be happening this coming weekend on uh, July 18th. So if you join CFP Pro before then, you're free to enter. All right. So let's get the thing started, BK. The first thing we're going to be doing each week is the deck of the week. Just a short little segment on a deck that we think is cool. And BK picked this one out. This is a uh, four-color team reclamation deck. Tell us about what's going on here. Yeah, so this deck was piloted by Tangrams, a.k.a. David Inglis, at the Star, Star City Tour Online Championship Qualifier this past weekend. He won the event. And it, it takes basically the stock teamer reclamation deck, adds in some Ketria Triomes, and then it splashes Teferi Time Raveler in the main deck. And in a teamer reclamation ruled metagame, you can certainly appreciate why you'd want to gain access to that card. It does such a tremendous amount of work sort of shutting down the card wilderness reclamation. But the real spice that comes from adding white to the teamer reclamation deck comes in the sideboard. So in the sideboard, we see three copies of Kenrith the Return King. And that card just has a ton of versatility in the metagame. Against aggro decks, it's a 5-mana 5-5, which is a great body to be able to block things like Bone Crusher Giants, trade with Questing Beasts. Against the Team of Reclamation decks, they can't Aether Gust it, they can't Mystical. Well, they can Mystical <laughs> Dispute it, but not at that cheap discount. And then they can really never land a Wilderness Reclamation for the rest of the game, as it can blow it up with its green activated ability. In addition to that, you get things like Solar Blaze and Justice Strike. And that's really been a weak spot of the Team of Reclamation archetype, is having access to good spot removal. Sure, you can play Scorching Dragonfire and Sweltering Suns, but it or sorry, rather, uh, Storm's Wrath, but it doesn't really get as good as Solar Blaze and Justice Strike at being able to kill the full suite of creatures. Yeah, especially when you're dealing with some of these larger green creatures, because Mono Green is is kind of like the anti-rec deck, as it were. Yeah, we've had to see the Team of Reclamation archetype adapt as a whole. Some players are going for things like Elder Gargaroth in their sideboard, main deck Storm's Wrath, uh, but Tangrams definitely came up with the sort of the sweetest approach. And this is a deck that we saw show up in some small numbers at the end of last season, but it definitely seems like it might have some more legs as aggro has gained a stronger foothold in the metagame. It's also pretty sweet that you're playing the the team wreck mirror, as it were, and then you just have this ace in the hole where if you land a Teferi, it just puts them in a world of hurt and gives you a three-mana card that's a huge threat, which isn't really the case generally in the mirror. Yeah, frequently you make plays in the mirror like tapping out for growth spirals on your own turn just so that they can't get countered, they can't get expansion, things like that, and when there's a Teferi lurking around, you got to be a little more careful because if you tap out on your turn for an Uro or something like that, something totally game-breaking like a Teferi could show up now. Yeah, it's actually one thing that makes me lament a little that all the big tournaments now are going to be open deck lists, which I think overall is the better kind of logistically way, good way to run things because of streaming and coverage and all that. But one of the cool things about, say, playing this deck in like a paper Grand Prix is your opponent would make that play because like BK said, it's really common to, you know, play a turn two gross power while they're tapped out so and they can't counter it. And then just going Temple Guard into Fairy and your team wreck opponent's going to be like, what is going on? Like, I just lost the game. <laughs> yeah, the one upside of all of the open deck list is that you can do things like put sweet one ofs in your main deck or sideboard and then have your opponent's head spinning about whether or not they're supposed to play around the one of Copti of Lofty Denial in the main deck of Tangram list. <laughs> yeah, that, that is pretty sweet. That was a, a pretty good deck of the week, BK. I expect better next week, but you know, we'll see what you can do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're we're going to move on to our first topic, which is kind of 
to take a look at what happened with the bands. It's kind of funny because I actually talked with Matt Nass uh, on the bandwagon about this, but I figured I would go for a more of an authority here. So that's why I got BK on the line. Uh, what we saw in across the formats was surprising in some formats. So starting with historic, that one wasn't, wasn't too shocking. I mean, Nexus of Fate got banned and Burning Tree Emissary kind of like inexplicably got put into the suspended list, but that didn't seem like it's going to make a huge impact. The Nexus ban is real though. Yeah. And let, let's not forget that also three cards were moved from the suspended list to the full <laughs> ban list. Agent of Treachery, Winota Joiner Forces, Fires of Invention. I think the collective magic community can agree. Yeah, we're, we're definitely cool with taking a break from those for an extended period of time. Yeah, and the, the whole suspended list thing, I, I, I kind of get it, but I really don't. E- either way, I mean, it, it seems like, again, banning with extra steps to, to quote the, a, a great work of, of, of art in our society. Um, you, you end up, for the most part, just taking cards that are on, on the suspended list. And I guess after two or three months, they have to either graduate to the ban list or come off it. Like I kind of expect Burning Tree Emissary to end up unsuspended, you know, at some point here in the future. But either way, so setting aside the suspended list, this just seems like an improvement to historic. Nexus of Fate is just... You know, we have this whole class of cards we talk about, BK. I think you actually were one of the first people to mention it. Can we just delete Nexus of Fate from Magic? Same with Once Upon a Time, Oko, you know, just at Arkham's Astrolabe. The kind of cards that really didn't make any games of Magic better. Yeah, and it's definitely something that we've seen more of be an issue in the last year and a half of Magic. As Magic has sort of grown into being more of an eternal game uh, with more and more play taking place in the older formats whether that's something like commander pioneer historic modern that's just more of what bread and butter magic is these days and part of that is the move to digital you know as magic is growing up as a game into a digital game it's easier to get those older cards but one of the issues with that is we see a card like nexus of fate and it's like man it wasn't that long ago that it was sort of wrecking faces and standard and now we're dealing with it in historic again so at least we're sort of getting to take a break from an historic uh, as far as Burning Tree Emissary, totally agree with your take on that card. It It's kind of hard for me to imagine that Burning Tree Emissary can be sustained a problem in a format. At most, what it does is put out some free 2-2s. Those just aren't the biggest things. You can sweep them away. You can put out slightly larger creatures. And if you've ever played a Burning Tree Emissary in a constructed format before, you understand the range of your draws is going to be really high, but also really low. Yeah, when you draw a turn five burning tramissary, it's a joke. You you drew a, you drew a slightly upgraded memnite, and one of the things the nexus span also does is it makes it so people can actually play creature removal again. One of the one of the issues with something like nexus being one of the best decks is it really punishes you for for trying to show up with shatter to the sky in your deck. <laughs> no doubt, and this is going to be a big test for the whole suspension system for historic in general. One of the cards that was suspended in the past was Field of the Dead. It got off of the suspended list. It's back in action. And Nexus of Fate actually was doing a pretty good job of keeping that in check. You know, when you think about Field of Dead, it's giving you lots of extra value, lots of extra tutus. But Nexus of Fate lines up pretty well against that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if Field of the Dead, you know, enjoyed its brief respite and then now is going to be back to the band or suspended list. We'll, We'll see about that. And Historic is poised to be under more of a microscope it's it's a format for for the not this pt final but for a a later one or is it for this one 
So it's for the Mythic Invitational that I believe you are playing in as a member of the Rivals League. That's the next time that Historic oh, is going to be in the spotlight. <laughs> it was recently announced that, actually just today, that it's going to be pushed back to early September. And I believe it's now going to follow the release of Amonkhet uh, Remastered. So what they're doing there is I believe they're taking all of Amonkhet Block and they're going to release some sort of product that is going on Magic Arena that's going to add the key constructed staples to the Historic format but it's not going to be exactly the full set of Hour of Devastation Amonkhet. I would still expect to see the Scarab God, Hour of Devastation, all the major staples, but we're not going to quite get exactly every single card. Yeah, I, I've been playing a lot of Magic recently, actually a ton, but I haven't really been following exactly which tournaments are because I know I'm not playing one for the next couple of weeks, but uh, good call. Yeah, historic. I'm <laughs> 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 uh, definitely going to be prepared for that uh, the Mythic Invitational. I mean, I will be. I, I actually found this last... Uh, players tour to online one to be awesome i had a, i had a great time i was able to stream it which is really cool and i yeah i prepared that week and even though it was not the newest standard format in the world i certainly it, it helps me get my fix of like competitive magic definitely yeah i i totally agree i, I think the testing experience is a lot worse than when it's a paper tournament there's just something about being able to actually play cards in front of in front of another human being for preparation but when it comes to the tournament i mean it really is just you and yourself and your game and doing that in front of a computer is really just as good yeah so uh historics seems fine obviously we're going to see a little bit more pressure good good thing you brought up field of the dead um Pioneer is is the most disappointing, I think, of the announcements today. We expected some action to be taken on Inverter, possibly some action to be taken on Lotus Breach. And instead, we got no bans and an Oath of Nyssa unban. Like, come on. That, I, I do not like this at all. I really don't. I I think that you can you can you, you know you can look at win percentages. That's one of the things uh, Ian Duke referenced in the article explaining it. But you know what matters too? The fact that the Pioneer challenges do not fire on Magic Online on a consistent basis. Yeah, so for a frame of reference, every weekend on Magic Online, there's a pair of of tournaments that cut down to a winner. They're called challenge events if you've never gotten a chance to play in them. And for a Pioneer, three out of the last four leading up to this weekend hadn't fired. They hadn't hit the minimum player threshold of 64. Uh, this weekend, the Pioneer Showcase Challenge, that's a slightly higher echelon tier of tournament, and the actual Pioneer Challenge both did fire. But the Pioneer Challenge apparently uh, only fired with like just over 64 people after the time had uh, sort of expired on the event i mean people are voting with their wallets and they're saying we don't want to play pioneer so and just that, to be clear you're okay with the oath of nissa unban you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, 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 that, that that's not very concerning to me uh, the, the problem i have is inverter it has been pretty dominant not maybe not to the point where it's like wrecking the format but to the point where between inverter field and field, people I think are just not enjoying the format, and that matters too. A, a balanced format is not the same as a fun format. You can have unbalanced fun formats, and that's vastly preferable to a balanced unfun format. And when all the best decks in Pioneer are combo, you know, when two of the top three, with the third being the Heliod Ballista deck, which is also secretly a combo deck, though it mostly plays like a like a mid range deck. It's going to kind of disenfranchise a lot of people who want to play with their aggressive creatures or want to play with their control cards and are really struggling because, you know, Inverter is a really tricky deck to play against. It's a really difficult deck to both pilot and play against. And it's one of those decks, I think, that can be really unsatisfying to lose to. 
Yeah, I think the range of interaction that players have access to against Inverter is just not getting it done right now. We've really tested the limits on how much adding an Ipnu Revolute to your blue deck can do against the deck. And it just turns out it's not that much. The, you can play with sort of cranial style effects. Necromantia is the new one from M21 that's sort of showing up in older formats. It's an improvement definitely on Lost Legacy and on Mord Ego. But if you do that against Inverter, they're very well adapted to just side in cards like additional Narsets, Ashiok Nightmare Muses. Uh, Corey Burkhart uh, locked up his top eight with a with a pack rat against me when I was playing Breach and I brought in some disruption against him. So yeah, it, it's just not getting the job done right now. And so people feel like they've sort of played out the games against Inverter and they would like to move on to something else. Hopefully Wizards will hear, but for now you've gotta if you wanna if you wanna play in a pioneer tournament going forward, definitely be ready for inverters still. Yeah, and I think that when when the status quo I think is not good, it's hard for me to justify not taking more more severe action. And yeah, the oath of Nissa unban is A gonna potentially, you know, give some legs to a Kethys combo. Kethys the hidden hand from M20. Or uh I guess B. Uh, lead to more mid-range green, which is just going to lose to like Inverter and Breach. So I, I really don't get what that was trying to accomplish. Do you, do you have any sense of where Oath of Nyssa could go that would kind of disrupt what's going on in Pioneer? The only other place that I've seen Oath of Nyssa look like it ha- might have some potential against a deck like Inverter and the other combo decks of the format is in the green Planeswalker deck that tries to play with lots of copies of Vivium, Arkham Ranger, and Karn the Great Creator. So sort of use that base green ramp engine, get up to these planeswalkers, and then use both of those cards tutoring effects to be able to tutor up whatever kind of hate card is going to be effective against the combo deck you're playing. Mixed results I've seen with that one, but it is something that you can try and explore. I, I mean, I do like the mono green deck. It was pretty fun for a while, but it just didn't really actually deliver. Uh, maybe, maybe Oath of Nissa will change that. But, you know... It, if if I were to take a look at all the bands as we talk through this, like I'm happy, I'm either I'm happy, slightly happy to happy with all of them except Pioneer, which I'm like very unhappy with. I also really love Pioneer. It's a format I really took to. I remember <laughs> before the the Pioneer Players Tour, I, I was racking up a lot of trophies past the point where I really needed to be playing with that blue white deck because I just enjoyed playing with it. Yeah, but you didn't play blue white at that PT. No, I did not. I played I played Lotus Breach. <laughs> the funny thing is Luis and I weren't testing together for that tournament, and we both just kind of knew that Breach was busted and neither of us was saying anything to the other about it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was funny how BK kicked, kicked me off their testing team, but that's a story for another podcast. Um, we, we've got also got Modern, where, uh, you know, Arkham's Astrolabe finally is is, is the, the inexorable march toward it being deleted in every format. Legacy's next. It's the... You know the you know the, the the picture with the Reaper going into every door, <laughs> like <laughs> Legacy the last one. It's okay, it, it can live in vintage. I'm fine with that. It's already out of Popper and it's now out of Modern, which I, I couldn't be happier about. Or comes Astrolabe bans non snow lands from being played because even if you're playing like a blue white deck without any snow stuff, you got to play the snow covered islands. Otherwise, your opponent gets a, some meaningful information. So. Hopefully Astrolabe makes this kind of like four, three to four color mid-range stuff. Mo- Actually, Legacy is the four color one. Modern's mostly three. Uh, calm down a little bit, but, you know, I wouldn't wouldn't have minded Uro leaving as well. I don't think that card adds a whole lot, but I, I'm, I'm honestly happy with Astrolabe being gone. Yeah, it, Modern's definitely in a tricky spot. I The biggest thing that's happened with Modern in the last year, I still think, is just the London Mulligan. And 
we really have struggled to get modern into a stable place since the London Mulligan arrived. It was Tron or Dredge or Urza decks or their recent uh, Mystic Sanctuary Cryptic Command control decks. It's been a challenge to get it into a place where people felt like a wide range of strategies were viable and that the games were interesting and that you sort of could inter- could uh, meaningfully play out a good a sort of a good game of modern as opposed to it just sort of feeling like both players were going to try their hardest to sort of do their thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, that has been kind of a feature of modern its entire existence where it, you know, if you look at the, the metagame shares of all the decks, what percentage of modern decks would you describe as like BS decks where if you don't have specific hate linear decks is maybe a, a slightly more elegant word where if you don't have a specific piece of hate, you're going to lose to KCI or affinity or Tron or dredge or all, you know, infect, ad nauseum all these decks but throwing the london mulligan into the mix is kind of like you know throwing a huge brick through the window that has modern because all of a sudden those decks just got quite a bit more reliable and consistent and yeah like you said modern's never really stabilized from that so yeah so if i were picking up modern going forward i would continue to focus on the decks that have sort of done well i think modern's a place where you don't want to get too focused up when there's a change in terms of oh, what's going to be better because this other deck is weaker? It's usually just going to be more of whichever deck was second best is going to rise to the top. So things like Amulet Titan, Dredge, the sort of the Gruul mid-range decks, they all seem like perfectly viable places to continue to look moving forward. Dredge actually picked up, picked up a nice little bit of technology. Silver Smoke Ghoul from uh, M21. At three mana, three one, and you can pay one on a black and sack it to draw a card. But the, the key is at the end of your turn, if you've gained three or more life, it returns to the battlefield tapped. So in conjunction with Creeping Chill and your favorite card in the world, Smiting Helix, all BK tries to do in cube is, is enable Smiting Helix decks, even though it's not in this particular vintage cube. Um, with Creeping Chill and Smiting Helix, you have more ways to bring back a creature which will then trigger your prized amalgams. So Silver Smoke Ghoul is a kind of new little addition. And, you know, Dredge just gets a fair amount of cards, more than most decks like this, because what it's looking for is any card that really has, like, good graveyard interactions, which turns out to be a little bit more than than most linear decks. Like Ad Nauseam, you know, they added Thassa's Oracle, but haven't added a card for the previous two years. Right. So... Modern, yeah, we'll see where it goes. I think that your advice is sound. Basically, don't don't assume that because these snow decks got worse, then you know you should you should factor in a deck that like had a t- tough snow matchup as much as hey, what were the other good decks that didn't get hurt? Let's see, how, let's start start there and see where things go. People are still going to be trying to play Uro, but I do think that the percentage of Uro has to go down quite a bit without Astrolabe. Yeah, the, and the deck will have less of a target on its back at first, but you never want to sort of assume otherwise. I mean, I saw some people tweeting today about how excited they were to play Blood Moon now now that they knew that they couldn't get uh, sort of cheesed out by Urkham's Astrolabe unlocking all the colors anyway. Yeah, and yeah, now it's time for, you know, people are already playing this Arbor Elf Glorybringer <laughs> Utopia Sprawl Pillage deck. It's, it's, I guess, time for Blood Moon to really shine now that uh, Astrolabe is on its way out. <laughs> Yeah, and really the Gruul deck, I think, at its heart is an extension of a Jun deck. But what people have sort of recognized is hand disruption in modern just isn't that good. We've sort of reached past the tipping point of redundancy of great selection. 
production thanks to the London Mulligan of hand disruption being the way you want to attack decks. And really the better way to go about it if you're a Jun deck nowadays is to try to attack the mana, play things like Pillage and Blood Moon, Magus of the Moon, and go after them and just stop them from being able to cast whatever they have left in their hand instead of trying to strip something from their hand. Well, I mean, th- there, there's nothing more satisfying than preventing your opponent from playing the game, at least for some subsection of players. Uh, yeah, I think we both count ourselves among those ranks from time to time. <laughs> Look, just because I drafted a lot of Crucible Strip Mine over the course oh of uh, the Cube, yeah, don't, don't even get me started. Uh, trust me, we'll save that for our next podcast, Cube Structed Resources. Uh, and, then, and then wrapping things up, we've got Popper, where Mystic Sanctuary and Expedition Map got banned. So I like the Mystic Sanctuary ban. So first of all, I think this was just a pretty reasonable choice. Uh, that that card leads to mostly nonsense. You know, it combined with Tragic Lesson in, in the or Deprive in the blue decks locks people out. And then with Ghostly Flicker in the like kind of Ephemerate style decks can really be annoying. That said, uh, banning Expedition Map kind of shows to me that the... The decisions were not made like with an eye, with a really embedded eye into Popper, which I think is totally fine. You can't really expect Wizards to keep track of every single format. I just don't think the Expedition Map ban does much. The Tron decks and Popper honestly aren't going to care an excessive amount, and other decks losing Mystic Sanctuary is pretty good for them. So I I think it's a fine place to start. I I would have maybe rather Ghostly Flicker been axed just because that, that card is just nonsense, but... Overall, I, I think as someone who does play Popper, I play the challenge most every week. Uh, this is a, this is a good change, even if I played Mystic Sanctuary the last three or four weeks. Yeah, it is your kind of card. Oh yeah. Um, so overall, I think the bands were okay, but really the 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 pioneer lack of action was disappointing, and it's kind of where we're going to have to leave it, you know. And we'll we'll see how Pioneer fares after these couple weeks. All right, so our next topic is we're going to talk about M21 additions to Standard. So M21, I I would not describe it as the most powerful set recently, and that's pretty much a good thing given, (laughs) given what we've seen lately. But there's definitely been some key additions to a number of archetypes, and We've really seen a big boost to the to the metagame in terms of mono green aggro. That has got to be the deck that has gained the most from M21. It was a small player before, and now it is a major player. And there's no better place to start than with the addition of Scavenging Ooze. Scavenging Ooze was a card that people definitely underrated coming into this standard format. A lot of people were noting that the games weren't too removal heavy. There wasn't a lot of trading. It was a lot of ramping and powering up engines. But I think people really underestimated the fact that the two biggest engines in the format are Cauldron Familiar and Uro. And Scavenging Ooze is just one of the most fantastic two drops ever printed for answering both of those cards. Oh yeah, it it dunks on it dunks on both like pretty dominantly, just because uh not only is it a pretty big threat, but especially against the the Jun decks, it, it really ma- messes up one of their key tenets, which is I'm gonna get to chump your your stupid green creatures every single turn. Absolutely. So it's made mono green aggro into a major player in the format. We've also seen Garrick do some work in that archetype. Then there's another class of cards that got added to the format that have honestly fallen a little bit flat. And that's sort of the all of the ramp cards that got added. And that's Cultivate, Lanoir, Visionary, and Solemn Simulacrum. So first off, let's talk about the sad robot. Luis, why isn't the sad <laughs> robot showing up very much? It, I think it's just too expensive. 
it but it doesn't ramp you to a, a meaningful number. It, you know, the last time this was in standard, it actually had a perfect set of cards to ramp to, which was the Titans. You'd play uh, Solemn, you know, on turn three if you had another ramp spell, turn four otherwise, and it takes you from four to six perfectly because it gets you from four to five. Next turn, you play your land, you play a Primeval Titan, you play a Grave Titan. Those are those are great six mana plays. Right now, we're actually looking at uh, kind of a suite of five mana plays, and you know, Elspeth Conquers Death being like kind of chief among them. So Solemn really doesn't have as much of a home as a result. And I think the other big thing that we're noting is that it's hard to kind of outpace Uro and Growth Spiral as far as ramp effects and standard. Yeah, we're, we're we're seeing actually, it's kind of funny, like I would have expected Cultivate to make more of an impact and Lanowar Visionary wasn't on most people's radar. But, uh, you know, because we're, we're looking at the actual impact these cards had, not a speculative impact. And Lanowar Visionary, I think, is probably better in standard than Cultivate. It's yeah. kind of wild to say, but getting getting a two two in a card and it's still ramping if it survives, I think is more valuable than getting a land in your hand later. The place that I've seen the most impressive things from Lanora Visionary has been the Jun Food decks and various cauldron familiar witches oven decks. Uh, an acceleration piece that also doubles as a creature gives you a card that that's got some legs to it because it allows you to sort of work with your engine while also giving you mana. In the past, we saw people sometimes play some migration paths in their Junfu decks. So Lanora Visionary can take the spot there. If you want just a little bit more mana so you can go a little bit harder with your Trail of Combs and all of that, it fits in nicely there. Well, it's also really good with <laughs> the second best green two drop in M21, Joel Rail. So Joel Rail's the, you know, two mana, one, two. Whenever you draw your second card in the turn, she makes a two, two cat. And then she, you can pay six, make all your creatures into base XXs or X number of cards in your hand. And I think that she's a pretty huge addition to really any of these green blue decks, even Team Erec, though in Team Erec, sometimes she lives in the sideboard instead. But the curve of turn two Joel Rail, turn three Lanor Visionary is pretty impressive. Yeah, the place that Joel Rail has made her impact the biggest has definitely been Bant. The addition of good two drops and scavenging ooze and Joel rail and the 75 for BAMP has made a huge difference. It was just so hard for BAMP decks in the past to be able to have early board presence that contributed to sort of their late game. Yeah, you could play with Uro and Hydroid Crisis and eventually those would take over the battlefield. But if you were looking for something to make an impact early, you were kind of slim pickings. And, and what that kind of led to is Against the aggro decks, you just leaned really hard on like a sweeper, like Shatter the Sky and, you know, into Elspeth Conqueror's Death. And that's all fine because that did work against a lot of the aggressive decks. But when you played against another control deck, you really didn't it just didn't have anything good to do besides Teferi. Teferi was just absolutely the only card that mattered that you could play early with. Narset sometimes obviously making a, a, some waves, but Joriel just adds a completely different aspect. And she's so good in these decks that are also good against removal spells. So... You know, when you're talking about a card like Scorching Dragonfire, you do really not, do not want that card against Bant in general. That's always the card I would side out with Team Erek. But now that they have Joel Rail and Scavenging, it's like, oh, I guess I should keep some of these in. And then they just have the, the Growth Spiral into Teferi, into Elspeth Conqueror's Death, into Nyssa Draws, and you're just looking at the Scorching Dragonfire like, I just wish you were any other card. Yeah, the Bant decks aren't very uh, lean right now. They're playing a lot of two and three ofs just because... It's really valuable for the way that the band decks are playing out to have access to a variety of tools and not the same kind of tool each game. Your second copy of Joel Rail is not doing that much. Same thing with your second copy of 
of of something like scavenging ooze or nissa or even elspeth who conquers death yeah you might want them eventually but that sort of brings us up to teferi master of time which has not as kind of found a home in bant ramp <laughs> yeah there were some early haters i do recall but uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah i underrated that card I just remember the first day when I, I said, I think this card could be okay. And, and BK and Matt Nassim were both just like, what are you talking about? This is the worst card I've ever seen. It's terrible. Is that is that an accurate rendition? So Teferi Master of Time has done pretty well because it gains a lot of loyalty <laughs> in fast order. The ability to activate on both players' turns means it has a virtual plus two instead of, a, uh, instead of an BK, activate. BK, you're, you're just reading the card right now. <laughs> No, but in all seriousness, the card actually ended up being good because of context. So I I think it's actually kind of unfair to be like, what, this card doesn't look good. And it's like, oh, but the context makes it good. Oh, yeah, those are the easy cards to miss. As someone who does a lot of reviewing, the cards I always miss are the cards that are contextually good because those are really hard to determine. And I think Joel Rail single-handedly pulls Teferi into, into standard. And then the last card I think we should definitely make sure we hit, touch on is Ugin, the Spirit Dragon. And Ugin's seen a little bit of play. It hasn't taken over the format. Some people were worried that the format was just going to become mono ramp into Ugin. And the reason that Ugin is only seeing a small amount of play right now is that there's so many cards that are effective at killing it. Cards like Shark Typhoon, Questing Beast, Nissa Who Shakes the World. The fact that Ugin can't kill Nissa tokens, well, it can plus on them, but its minus effect doesn't do anything to Nissa token Nissa lands because they're colorless. Right. So the, the the normal play pattern with Ugin that we saw last time it was in standard that we see in, in modern is you play Ugin, you minus it, it wipes the board, they play something else, and then you start plus twoing Ugin plus using the cards in your hand to protect it. As you say, BK, when when they have a Nissa out, you're like, well, I can minus five and kill the Nissa plus their other Planeswalker plus their Jewel Rail, all their cats. But all the lands they animate are just going to go pound Ugin. And, you know, I've seen plenty of games where it looks like Ugin's going to take the, over the battlefield. And then either a Questing Beast comes out, an end of turn Shark Typhoon gets cycled, or someone just plays Elspeth Conqueror's Death. And yeah, Ugin did something initially, but your eight mana card needs to basically win you the game. Eight mana is just not a trivial amount of mana. So you're seeing Ugin get played maybe as a one or two of in Bantex right now, and that feels about appropriate. <laughs> I remember watching it actually at your place, uh, Caroline play against an opponent, who, the Sultai opponent, who had four Ugins in their deck. Yes. She beat all four. <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the games I was thinking of. It's just like she ground through four copies of Ugin. Okay, maybe this card isn't all it's cracked up to be because I think coming in, that was probably the card that got the most hype in terms of impacting standard. So the, there's been some other small hits here and there. Frantic Inventory and S- Stormwing Entity for sort of the blue-red spells related decks, whether they're Arclight Phoenix or not, has shown up some. But for the most part, we've seen this standard format M21 add scavenging use to all variety of green decks, some additional though tools for teamer rack and ban ramp. But at the end of the day, it really still is teamer and bans world to lose. Yeah. I, w- I will note that frantic inventory also has shown up in some of the teamer rec decks because, you know, they have a little bit of extra mana. They can afford the slightly more expensive cantrip that pays off later in the game. And then expansioning like a, an inventory for three is not the worst play in the world. <laughs> no, it's certainly not. So, you know, in looking at the list of cards that affected standard, I think it's kind of funny to see that scavenging use certainly helped mono green. That was probably the biggest gain of any deck and any card, right? But almost all the other cards are blue or green. 
And I don't think it's as easy as saying, oh, Blue Green got all the best cards. I think it's just partially because Blue Green is just all the best decks right now. So all the good Blue Green cards did find a home. And maybe the good black, white, and red cards had a, had more trouble because there are fewer of those decks in the format. Yeah, there's certainly a good variety of cards in M21 that could show up a lot more post-rotation. Uh, I can think of no better example than Archfiend's Vessel. That's the one drop that when it is played from the graveyard, you sack it, or you exile it rather, and you get a 5-5 demon with flying. And that's a really sweet card. We I've seen people do cool things with main deck Luris with it, with Call of the Death Dweller. But at the end of the day, if Teferi is going to be a prominent card in the format, it's kind of hard to justify going down that route. Yeah, I mean, don't, don't get me started on Teferi Time Reveler. That, not one of my favorite cards historically. Uh, I, I didn't think of the, the Luris uh, Archfiend's Vessel combo. That's pretty cool. Yes, it's a little bit scary. Uh, a couple of people have pointed out that it's like, Luris and Archfiend's Vessel is so busted, it's kind of frightening to think of the original companion role with that combo. <laughs> uh, yeah, but th- let's not get started on what a blue-green deck would look like without bands. You realize, like, Oko and uh, Once Upon a Time, w- would like these cards would just all be legal at the same time. Veil of Summer, uh, th- there's another cycle of bannings that I'm not even remembering. Like, it's just, there, there are so many good blue and green cards that would all be legal at the same time. Like, what did those decks look like? <laughs> the most terrifying combo that's been pointed out to me is Oko with Luca. And I played Luca at the at, in a one of the arena opens and did well with it. And the idea of upgrading Omen of the Sun into Luca and where Luca is making food to, or sorry, Oko is making food tokens into three threes for Luca to turn into Agent of Treacheries is absolutely terrifying. Right, Agent, that was the other card. Yeah. It, it, it's it's kind of staggering if you think about like how we got here. <laughs> but uh yeah. I, I do think that. It's actually not a bad thing that M21 is having maybe not the biggest impact because I would rather see more sets around M21's power level than Throne of Eldraine's power level or Ikoria with Companions' power level. Though Ikoria without Companions, obviously, is quite a bit less frightening. Yeah, the one possible thing I think that we could have gotten with M21 that would have been great is some sort of generic hate card against ramp and non-basic land decks. If we had gotten something that was akin to uh, the mana barbs effect, so that's the enchantment that when you tap a non-basic land for mana, uh, the the owner takes one damage. I think that could have done really good work in terms of giving aggressive decks and red decks of all sizes some sort of counterplay to just generically their opponent grow spiraling into lots of non-basics. I mean, Field of the Dead technically could have been legal right now. We might have wanted to take a break from that. And that wouldn't be too much of a pressure moving forward. I think we've all seen enough ramp that if there was a good anti-ramp hate card in people's sideboards, it wouldn't be the biggest deal for the next year. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, except for the part about mana barbs, because that it actually it's a messed up card. It actually punishes you for any land you tap. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't remember. They did a mana barbs variant about five, six years ago in a core set that only hit non-basic lands. Yeah, and, and I think something like that would probably be about right, whereas something like Blood Moon is a little too much. Like you don't you don't want people just locked out, but yeah, I, I think that we've seen the pendulum swing back and forth, and right now ramp, well, it feels like it's kind of stuck on the ramp end. Like ramp has been the best for for long enough that a change would have been nice, and sideboard options or or more targeted options are a great way to go about that because you can really limit the the things you don't want while not really constricting the overall space of the format by that much. 
Yeah, I'm optimistic moving forward, though, about what we'll see past rotation. Questing Beast is a fantastic card. There's, It's going to be hard for a lower-powered ramp deck to deal with that one, for instance. Yeah, I think that there there is a lot. Uh, well, there's a lot of powerful cards that also are not seeing that much play. Oh, so yeah. It's interesting, it, interesting to see what the like second stringers are, especially as you have sets rotate or th- have things ban. Um Let's take let's take a look at the standard power rankings. We're kind of on the subject. Uh, I think it's pretty hard to to deny that Team Arec is just the best deck right now. Yeah, I love Team of Reclamation. The just the core engine of Wilderness Reclamation, Growth Spiral, and Expansion Explosion is just so hard to deny. We've seen Team of Reclamation decks in the last couple of weeks demonstrate why it's the core of that deck that is what puts it on top. We've seen people be able to adapt to the rise of Mono Green Aggro and Rakdos by playing different kinds of anti-aggro tools, whether that's Nightpack Ambusher, Joriel, Main Deck Storm's Wrath. At the end of the day, it's so hard to interact with Wilderness Reclamation plus Expansion Explosion, and when that combo pops off in a mid-range game, it is absolutely the best thing to be doing, that it's hard to not want to play a well-tuned Team or Reclamation deck at an upcoming tournament. Yeah, I mean, that that's certainly what I would do. Though I, I do have to, the, the CFB Pro Showdown this weekend. I might do, do something other than Team Erec just to do something other than Team Erec. But if if I were playing in the in that tournament itself or if I had a, a tournament I really cared about this weekend, it, I'd be hard-pressed not to play Team Erec. It's gotten – it consistently gets new tools. And like you said, I think one of the strengths – it's kind of like Inverter actually where the, the, the good combination it has are cards that are pretty hard to disrupt. Like – Yes, there are, there have been decks that have kind of punished you for playing Wilderness Reclamation, but has it ever been successful to board in Disenchants against Team Erec? Has that ever been like a good strategy? It's just never been good. Yeah, there's so much variety of ways about the way that you can get juked. I mean, just starting with Uro is in their main deck, but then whether it's Kenrith that we've seen today, Elder Gargaroth is one that I've seen people picking up on recently in both the Teamer and Bant decks. And yeah, if you get caught with a Wilt in your hand against that card, sure, you can cycle it for two, but if your next card down isn't something that deals with those bad boys, uh, that's not going to do it. I mean, Teamer Rec even has sideboard plans which involve shaving numbers of those or more. I could see matchups where when you have deck lists and you know that they're going really hard on reclamation hate you're just like all right fine i'll just put nightpack ambushers in my deck instead and elder gargaroths and and just go completely around that plus uh, you know growth spiral into removal spells is always just a good combination and shark typhoon and uro are these cards that really stand on their own there's nothing the only card that team rec plays that needs other cards is well wilderness rec and then to some degree expansion explosion but you can still usually find a use for that in games where you don't draw wilderness reclamation it's not like you it's not like splinter twin where you have to have the exarch to make Splinter Twin into a card. Yes. If you're one of the things that separates top tier team of reclamation pilots versus the rest is the use of expansion explosion. I have seen absolutely ridiculous things done with it, whether it's even just copying something like a scorching dragon fire, copying a storm's wrath to get a really big creature off of the board. I mean, there's a lot of great spells and it can copy your opponent's spells. So keep in mind those creative lines when you're playing with team of rec. Yeah. I mean, snapping off a, a growth spiral it feels pretty good and then sometimes other even other decks just ha- happen to have cards which you can copy for profit so i i will say though the, the last card i cast expansion on was ancestral recall no big deal <laughs> the <laughs> well if we're going to talk about random expansion stories at the, pr- the last pro tour i expansioned my sultai opponent's grizzly salvage and found a, a lotus field okay that's pretty good <laughs> you, you got me beat there hey you know Expansion is one of those cards I actually love that it's seeing play because it just 
leads to a lot of cool possibilities. That's the kind of card I want to see more of and fewer cards like, you know, Uro, which does just the same thing every time. Like Uro doesn't lead to interesting games. Uro leads to games that you know you lose if they if they attack with their Uro. <laughs> so the, I think the next deck that if I weren't going to play Team of Wreck is I would be looking at Bant. And Bant, it's definitely contentious about whether or not it is better than Team of Wreck. Uh, there's a lot of contention about how that matchup lines up specifically. There's just so many tools that you can play with in Bant to be good against what you want to be good against. The combination of Teferi and Elspeth Conqueror's Death does a reasonable job of interacting with the Wilderness Reclamation expansion explosion combo. Certainly not a lock, and you got to make sure you have those cards when you need them. But Teferi is just the best card in the format against uh, Team of Reclamation, so it makes sense to start there if you're looking for a deck to beat Team of Rec. I, I will say that as a Team of Rec player through and through, I, I really have never gotten to the point where I think Bant's an easy matchup. Like, oh, yeah, definitely not. I, I lose to Bant all the time. It always feels like they have Teferi plus Dispute, and then you're just playing catch-up the whole game. And every time you think you might climb out of the hole, they drop another Planeswalker, and every turn you're just you know incrementally behind, and that just keeps happening. Plus, as you said, Bant's a little more flexible than Team Rec. Team Rec has more locked-in slots, and uh, you know Bant, Bant's got a, Bant can get away with Mission Creep. They can get away with playing two and three of basically any of their cards except Growth Spiral and Teferi. It's because... Well, whether you want the fourth Elspeth Conqueror's Death, yeah, most of the time you do, but sometimes you might not want that. Sometimes you, you do want two ooze, two Joel Rail, and, and you just get to pick and choose how many Teferis you want to play, and, or Teferi uh, Master of Times, that is. And you can really customize your deck. So it might, in some cases, reward you more if you're really good at predicting what you're going to face on, on a given tournament. Yeah, and... The, the biggest thing I think with Bant is just getting very familiar with the matchups and all of the lines that you want. You're going to see a lot of different cards. You're going to have very intricate decisions about which sort of mid-range card you want to drop on a given turn. And knowing when to hold up and when to sort of deploy is a really tough thing for about playing Bant. Yeah, it's it's something that you're, you're, you're going to need to have a decent amount of experience before kind of... Uh, Get, being comfortable with that. And to some degree, you're actually not going to be ever comfortable with it because look with, with team or rec, it's pretty easy. You just don't tap out because the deck doesn't really tap out. Like, yeah, sometimes you have to decide where to throw reclamation into open mana, but with Bant, you're often going to be faced with, do I tap out for a more powerful play or do I hold back with, with just like a gross battle or a shark typhoon or something a little bit less effective, but I'm just worried about my, you know, tapping out for Nissa or Elspeth Conqueror's death. So, the yeah, the premier aggro deck of the format, I think, right now is Mono Green Aggro. That is a deck that has gained a couple of new tools, not the least of which is Scavenging Ooze. But it's just got a solid suite of creatures, whether it's things like Pelt Collector is probably the best one drop in the format as far as aggressive options grow. I, well, I was going to say go, but it grows really big, really fast. <laughs> and it then, would have been better if you just left it like that, because it would have been, been just perfect. <laughs> uh, and then... There's a lot of different directions that you can take the mono green aggro deck, despite it being a one color aggro deck. I've seen players go as big as playing with Nissa, and then the other big addition with for mono green is Primal Might. So that's the X fight spell, and you could just play it as a prey upon if you just pay for a single green. But it can go really bananas when combined with a trample effect. I think one of the coolest combos that I've seen in the format is with Ram Through, actually. And so you get to Primal Might for a decent amount. You put it on a Trample creature. Then you Ram Through. You 
kill one of their things, and then that tramples over for some amount of damage, and then you get to actually make another giant uh, trampling attack with that still same creature. Yeah, you you end up kind of like, it, it almost feels like an old school berserk or infect combo kill when you get to combine all these cards, and the stats on these creatures are kind of ludicrous. Like, you, you just end up with 8-8s in play, like, kind of trivially. And Stone Coil Serpent is a card that the mono green deck gets to play. It's a really nice aggressive option just because it can't be interacted with by Teferi. Yeah, it, it also attacks past Uro. So sometimes, you know, on the team of Rex side, you're going to be like, well, I'm bringing back Uro. This, things look great. And they and they have a 5-5 five, five Stone Coil out. And then they make one of the plays you're talking about and just attack you for nine. And, and you end up just losing because you can't even block the Stone Coil. The other nice thing about Mono Green is that it's a rock solid mana base. And... It's it's even better. It does to play more than just basic force. Castle Garenbrake can combine nicely with some of the X effects. It can only be used on creatures, so you can't pump it into Primal Might, but it works nicely with Stone Coil Serpent. And then you get to play with some cool lands. Bonders Enclave is one that has shown up a little bit. And then Mobilized District is a pretty solid little impression of a mutavolt. Yeah, when when you end up with Mobilized District in play, and for those of you who you know, maybe haven't heard, thought about this card in a while. That's the the land that taps for colorless, and you can pay four to make it a three three until end of turn. But it costs one less for every legendary permanent you have. Uh, that card it, it has vigilance too, right? That, that card yeah. can that card can really deliver, especially since there are a couple legends you know, hanging around like Yorvo. <laughs> you end up uh, or Sir 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 Garenhammer, whatever, <laughs> whatever that guy's name is. Um, and it's not the questing beast, but questing beast is legendary too. Yes, and so you can end up uh, you can end up activating it for less than you might think, and just getting in that extra damage. It, it it's always funny when your opponent is like, "Well, I could cast Shatter the Sky, but then I would just die to their Mobilized District." Damn, <laughs> like that actually can matter quite a bit. So, so Louis, don't laugh at me, but the trickiest part about playing with Mobilized District in this deck is the Auto Tapper. No, it, it actually is because it doesn't. The auto tapper's biggest failing is predicting like future things. And it will often uh, not know that something's going to be cheaper and tap you as a result, or try to avoid tapping lands with special abilities like mobilized district and leave you with one mobilized district up when you really were expecting to have a forest untapped. Yeah. I mean, when the mono green deck opens on pelt collector, the deck is nigh unbeatable. Like that, that's, that's the, that's the draw. Sometimes it just feels like you, what you, you can't even compete. When it doesn't, the deck can struggle, I've found, but it's a very legitimate choice right now. I, I would not dissuade someone from wanting to play Mono Green. I think it, it's gotten new tools, it, it's a little more resilient and a lot more powerful than it might look at first glance. Yeah, and we've seen players need to adapt. Team of Reclamation decks have played with more with Bone Crusher Giant in the main deck because it is just a body that can kill a Pell Collector and then trade with a Questing Beast. Let's just say. One one piece of evidence that Mono Green has been doing pretty well is that I see a lot of decks with four OK Adversary in their sideboard. The the the, the lesser known member of the Mystical Dispute Cycle, the four mana two three Death Touch, but it only costs two if they have a green permanent. <laughs> it also draws a card and hits the opponent. But still, the fact that they're playing a lot of this card means that yeah, this is a real deck. You should respect it, and there's no no there's no harm in playing it. The other major aggro deck in the format right now is Rakdos Sacrifice. It has sort of supplanted Jun Sacrifice as the most popular cat oven deck in the format. And I think that's just because of its raw aggression and the fact that it can get underneath Teamer Reclamation and Bant to some degree. Yeah, and I'm also not surprised because 
the the Jun deck did some cool, powerful things, but I think as the format matured, you saw less Bolas Citadel and Corvalds and more like, hey, the control decks have just figured out how to beat these cards. You should just be playing Rotting Regisaurs and, and attacking your opponent for lots of damage. The big new addition that Rakdos Sacrifice has gotten has definitely been Village Rights. That's that one cost instant that sacks a creature to draw to. And it does a good job. It, it sort of to some degree negates the need of playing trail of crumbs and some of the other card advantage engines that junk food has. If you want to draw cards, you could just play this one minute answer. That's going to draw two and it's won't be as good in the very, very long games, but in the sort of the medium long games. And those are kind of the games that you want to play against Banta team of reclamation. You don't want to let them get set up too much. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Though they're, you know, looking at the result from the last standard challenge, that there there are some like rumblings of a mono black aggro deck using four copies of demonic embrace the three mana aura that gives a creature plus three plus one and flying and then you can keep recasting it from your graveyard for three life and a card each time like that that card really can beat some unsuspecting people very badly when all of a sudden you know your knight of the ebon legion or your rotting register just flies over for seven to ten damage in the air and then after a wrath you get to just cast a demonic embrace again that that's a pretty big game it definitely is. I think the fact that Scavenging Ooze has become one of the most played creatures in Standard has taken a little wind out of the sails of the Demonic Embrace, but definitely a powerful card when it comes together. Yeah, and I think, you know, moving on to, to the next couple decks, there's a pretty big gap. Like, the, I think the top four of Teamer Rec, Bant Ramp, Mono Green, and Rakdosak, well, it covers all the colors. It covers controlling uh, and aggro decks, mid-range, you know, kind of a little bit. I think there's a there's a there's a drop off when you look at uh, Sultai Ramp, Simic Ramp, and then Jun Sack, which are all I think fine decks. You're not we're not talking, you're not talking. You know we we went from tier one to tier three, but I would really need some good logic before before you know a really good excuse for someone to say like, hey, I actually want to play Sultai Ramp instead of Bant Ramp or Simic Ramp. You know, even just cut off a a third color completely instead of playing Bant Ramp, and I I haven't been convinced yet. Yeah, the deck that I, has fallen off the most, in my view, has been Mono Red. Just the some of the tools that these decks have gotten against Mono Red is fantastic. The Mono Red decks never felt like they were the most powerful. I believe Mono Red has been its weakest in this sort of standard rotation than it has in the last five years. But adding cards like Scavenging Ooze, Joel Rail, Elder Gargaroth, these are just fantastic. Yeah, Mono Red... You know, I, I think once Obosh leaving was the last time I thought Mono Red was, was actually good, mm. and and it's it's unfortunate because I actually think it's really healthy if there's a Mono Red deck most of the time in Standard, and I guess that's been true for a while. So maybe it's not the worst that it isn't right now. But I like when people just get that option to play, even if it's not something I tend to tend to lean on. So right now for Mono Red, I think that archetype that i would be advocating the most would be the cavalcade decks and just because they the cavalcade of calamity decks are sort of the least reliant on actually having an attacker connect and with some of the great mid-range creatures that have gotten printed for the growth spiral decks in the, in m21 i think i would be looking for a go wide approach first that that makes sense and well, we'll see if you know maybe we can figure out a, a list that may, that that works a little better. But right now, it's not a good time to be sleeving up virtually. I suppose. Well, hopefully, virtually, it's not not a good time to be sleeving up physically at all. But uh, a, you know, a virtual twenty two mountains or what have you. All right, Luis. So I think that's going to take us to the end of our first episode. Uh, before we go, we want to make sure that you both follow us on Twitter. 
Luis, do you remember your Twitter handle? Uh, so my Twitter handle is at LSV uh, and BK's is at ABEXT. So at A-B-A-E-C-K-S-T. And uh, how did you get to that one? <laughs> well, it's the first initial of my first name and then the first couple letters of my last name. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, and, uh, you, know, it, you know, this is our first episode here. So we're going to be you know, kind of populating on all the various podcast apps. You can, of course, listen or download it here on Channel Fireball. But we're going to be on, you know, iTunes, Spotify, all that. But you, you have to actually have episodes before you can do that. Uh, as we're also going to have an RSS feed you'll be able to subscribe to, too. So give us a little time here. We're going to make sure we get the podcast into your hands. I do want to thank Marshall again, uh, Marshall Sutcliffe, for, for very generously letting us use the Constructed Resources name. It, it did feel right to me, but of course, without Marshall's blessing, we certainly wouldn't wouldn't have done it. BK advocated going rogue, but I decided that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> yep, you know me. <laughs> uh, we do want to thank our, our sponsor as well, ChannelFireball.com. Uh, you know, CFB Pro, I think, is a great value proposition. Uh, it's $5 a month to, to get all the extra pro content, plus be able to play in the pro showdown, be uh, able to... to to join the CFB Pro Discord, where lots of cool people hang out. I, I do too sometimes. Uh, and you also get an additional 5% store credit bonus if you sell us cards. There's a lot of benefits. Plus, if you buy Magic cards, you know, the C- CFB Pro is $10 a month and you get $10 a month in store credit. So if you spend money on Magic, it's actually effectively free if you spend over $10 a month on Magic. So channelfireball.com slash pro is where you want to look at that. And yeah, I think that, you know, I've been really happy with CFB Pro. If you've noticed, I, I put up a ton of cube videos. I put up like six cube videos this week. Those videos are all are free. All our video content is free. And part of the reason I have the freedom to do that is CFB Pro. So even if uh, CFB Pro is not not the, the exact cup of tea for you, I think that you can thank a lot of this new content, including this podcast, for C, uh, as a result of CFB Pro. Wow, Luis, you did six cubes in one week? You've been jamming. Well, I didn't post all of them, but yes. <laughs> and also, don't, 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 don't give me that. BK is currently like fifth in the trophy race with like 15 trophies or something or 17. How, how many How many has it, BK? Tell me. It's 17. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, but this was a pleasure. We'll be back every week. You know, this is going to be a weekly podcast. It took us a while to spin this up, but part of that is making sure we could bring you a, a sweet, high-quality podcast every week. Of course, we've got to thank our producer, Gabby Sparts, as well. She's the one who really whips us into shape. And uh, we will be back next week. We'll see you then. All right. So to take us out, I wanted to tell you all about my first big level up moment in Constructed Magic. So I got started playing back in around 2012. And I had the fortune of actually top eighting my first PTQ with the Blue Green Infect deck. And it was kind of a rogue deck at the time. It wasn't super popular. This was during the Delver of Secrets standard metagame. And it was just an amazing experience. And I was so convinced that the reason that I had sort of gotten there was because I had come up with this rogue deck and was outwitting and outsmarting the competition with my deck choices. So that began a period of about a year where I basically tanked all of my tournaments by just playing horrible, horrible decks. I showed up to some TCG player tournaments with Progenitor Mimic copying Acidic Slime and Tracker's Instincts to try to outland destruction the other reanimator decks. (laughs) I showed up to one tournament, one PTQ playing with Boris Reckoner Harvest Pyre combo where I was using Seance to bring back Sphinx of Athun to dump cards into my graveyard so I could Harvest Pyre for a ton. It was just a lot of nonsense. This, this sounds like a bloodbath, BK. I can't imagine winning with any of these decks. 
And so what actually got me out of this funk was back then, Gabby and I were both living in Chicago and she sat me down and she just basically told me, you're too good to be playing decks this bad and losing to people so much <laughs> worse than you. And she had an intervention. <laughs> it was a magic intervention. And so the, the moral of the story in my mind was not that it's like, oh, I should have recognized that I was good at magic. It was that I should have sort of seen the forest for the trees and recognize that you don't always have to sort of be 10 levels above your opponent to beat them in a game of magic. Just show up, try your best, and sometimes things will bounce your way. And if you keep working at it and getting better, eventually good things will come your way. And the most important thing that you could do to be successful at magic is surround yourself with good people. So by listening to this podcast, you've clearly done that. Me and Luis are as good as they come. And our producer, <laughs> Gabby, is as good as she comes. So want to thank you all for joining us for this first of hopefully many constructed resources to come. Uh, we got we got at least three or four weeks in us, PK. <laughs> <laughs>